in a way that they never thought about. <laughs> Praise God. Well, Father, we just thank you for your presence already here today. We thank you for your word right now that as we're going to open it, we know that the same Holy Spirit that inspired it to be written is right here with us, revealing it, showing us its intentions. Father, we just, we just thank you for your goodness, and we honor your word right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start bringing our Simple Things series in for a landing, and I intend to wrap it up, but I find that whenever I have intentions like that, it never seems to work out, so we'll see. This could be the last week, and this could not be the last week, but that's what my intention is, and we've been doing this now for six weeks, and it really is the little things that have the most impact in our lives, and we often look to the large things and say, like, well, if I could just do this big thing or if I could get this obstacle moved out of the way, but it's the little things, the little things sometimes that we don't even think of, like Carrie didn't, could, didn't think of that option when she was going through the process, but it's the little things that have the most impact in our lives. And as we've been saying, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, said, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's the little things that can throw us off track. And, you know, as we've been saying that now for six weeks, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. And, you know, we have the children in here until next week. They go back to uh, their class. And sometimes you think, well, they're just in here. They're doing their crafts. They're, they're working on their things. They're not listening. But that couldn't be further from the truth. They listen just as much as you guys do. And this week we were driving, we were out for a long drive, I think it was Monday, and we just decided to take off and explore some new things for the afternoon. And as Robin and I were just talking in the car, as we were in the front and the kids were in the back, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but we, we were talking about some sort of scenario, and then all of a sudden Bennett like peeps up from the back and says, you know, what you're talking about is kind of like those little foxes that spoil the vines. <laughs> and we're like, what? And they were like, yeah, you're right, Bennett. <laughs> So, like, even though he's working on his thing and making noise with his elastic right now, Bennett, can you stop that? <laughs> they're listening, and they're catching things that sometimes we don't even get. And, you know, I was thinking about Jesus and a conversation he was having with his disciples in Luke chapter 16. And uh, he's talking to his disciples, but the Pharisees are right there listening in with him. And in Luke 16, verse 10, it's, he tells them, if you're faithful... In the little things, you will be faithful in the large ones. And often we want more, but we need to learn to whatever situation we find ourselves in to manage the little things to the best of our abilities. If God has given you little, be thankful for what you have, honor what you've been given, and let him do the increasing. He says, but if you're dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And as I was reading that, I thought of uh, Keith Moore, who pastors in Branson, Missouri. And for almost 20 years, he faithfully served Brother Hagen at Ramah. And over those years, he did many different functions. He was a worship leader for a while. He led prayer and healing school. He cleaned the toilets. He did whatever was needed. He traveled with Brother Hagen on the road. And he said that throughout those 20 plus years that he was traveling with him, that so many people would come up and say, oh, this is too little for you, Keith. You should, you should go out and start your own church, or you should be doing this, and you should be doing that. You know, you've got such greater things within you. And his response was always the same to me. God asked me, 
to come and serve this man and I will do it to the best of my abilities until he tells me to do else, something else. And he did that until Brother Hagen passed away and then he went out and he launched his church in Branson and within six months he was already had his church was over a thousand people. And everyone said, well, how did you, how, everything happened so fast? And he said, I was just faithful with what he gave me to do when I was in that season. Verse 11 says, if you're untrustworthy, come on, turn. Oh, you got to love when they lag, eh? Oh, it's reconnecting. If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, he says, who will trust you with the riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why would you be trusted with things of your own? I like how the message translation says, he says, if you're honest in the small things, you'll be honest in the big things. If you're a crook in the small things, you'll be a crook in the big things. And if you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? (laughs) And I, I like how that says it. And so basically what I'm trying to say is it's the little things. Whatever God has got you doing now, be faithful in it, do it with a good attitude, and honor what he has trusted you with now. Now in the context of Luke 16, Jesus was giving them an example about money, and it was a story about the unfaithful steward. And when he got to the end of that story, in verse 13, he says, no one can serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, and you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the real thing, this is not a message about money this morning, this is a message about when you put God first, good things happen. Because when anything else comes first, God is out of his place in your life. And in a world where we have infinite distractions, it's really easy for us to take God out of his place and honor other things in it. And when the Pharisees who were listening in on this conversation, it says they dearly loved their money. And they heard this, they scoffed at him. And his response to them was this. You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, God knows exactly how we feel about it. And we may be able to fool those around us, but you will never fool God. He knows what's in your heart and what you would rather be doing, where you put your priorities, and what are the most important things to you. You know, the Bible also says, Jesus said, he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what is your treasure? We know that we were talking about in the last two weeks in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says the word of God is living and powerful and we've been talking about how it will divide our thoughts and spiritual thoughts but it also said it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When we put in the word into us, when we read the word, it exposes what our thoughts and intents actually are. And that can be a great thing or it can be a bad thing. You know, we look and we're like, oh my goodness, my thoughts are different than God's thoughts. My intentions, my desires, and everything that I want don't seem to line up with what he have. And we are then faced with the dilemma. Do I continue as the God of my own life or do I let God be God and yield to his thoughts and intentions. And so whenever we approach the word, if we approach it with an open heart and an honest heart, 
We will always find ourselves in positions, no matter how we were raised, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how much we know, you will always find yourself in a position where maybe you weren't right. And the best thing we can do in those situations is say, God, I may have screwed it up for my whole life till this point, but I choose to change now. You know, I like what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're obedient, but we're not quite so willing in our hearts. You know, I'm doing it because I have to, not because I actually want to. And you know, God doesn't want you to serve him because you have to. He wants you to be with him because you want to. And that's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion will tell you all the things that you have to do. Relationship will expose all the things that you want to do. And you know, when the grace message was beginning to get, become popular in the last 10 years, a lot of people were like, well, you're just giving people a license to sin. And my response was, no, I'm exposing what they actually want to do. When you look at the grace of God and he says, yeah, you can do that. It's not going to be beneficial to you. It exposes our hearts for what we actually want. And so what we started talking about last week was growing up spiritually. And the reason why we have a need to grow up spiritually is because, as we said two weeks ago, you are a spirit. You have a soul and you live in a body. And we spend time giving attention to our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. We educate ourselves. We go to school. We learn new things. We train our bodies or ignore our bodies, whichever the case may be. We can give emphasis to the other two parts how much more what we really are in our spirit man. That when you give it attention, it comes to prominence. It begins to grow. It begins to have more influence in the sphere of our lives. Now, for the religious person, it simply means behavior modification, and that's what not, God, not what God is talking about with growing up spiritually. He's not here with the intention to modify your behavior, but as you begin to understand his heart, it will modify your behavior. But one puts the cart before the horse. When you are, fall in love with Jesus, when you fall in love with God, you begin to naturally desire the things that he desires for you. And there's things that begin to just fall away because they lose their importance. I remember having a conversation with another pastor friend of mine, and he said he found himself in a dilemma. He had a couple that they had just gotten saved like several weeks before I was with him. And uh, he said, they want to serve on the worship team. He's like, but they're not married and they're living together. So technically, I know that's sin. Should I let them do it? And I said, when did they get married, uh, born again? He's like, well, about three or four weeks ago. I said, make them fall in love in Je with Jesus and that won't be a problem. And it was about a month later, he called me and he said, you know what? You were right. They just came into my office and said, you know what? We just feel that we should get married. Can we do it today? Wow. <laughs> And it was like, it's amazing the things that happen when you just fall in love with God and let him sort out the things. It's not my job as a pastor to point out your flaws and make you better. My job is to point you to Jesus. 
And so religion is about behavior modification. Love is all about relationship. And so Jesus was having a conversation with uh, the, the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15. And this is what he said to them about this very topic. In verse, chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I love how the Passion Translation says, he says, They pretend to worship me, but their worship is nothing more than the empty traditions of men. So that's what religion does. Do you know what the heart of the Father does? Jeremiah chapter 24 says this in verse 6. It says, For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. He's prophetically speaking of the children of Israel who have just been carried off into the land of Babylon as, as slaves to the kingdom. And he says, I will bring them back. No matter where people have traveled to, the heart of God brings people back. And it says, I will build them up and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And verse 7 says, then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Simply by letting him be God, it was a draw for them to return, and they did it not with a half heart or part of their heart, with their whole heart. So God is not interested in your actions, your actions will follow where your heart is. Because that's what Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. When God becomes your treasure, your heart will follow after. Now, seeing as we're using the word heart, we should probably bring a little bit of definition to it, to what we're actually talking about. Because we've said that we are spirit, which is the word pneuma, which is the word uh, which means breath of God or life of God. It's the very part of him that when God created man in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, he breathed the breath of life into man. He breathed the part of himself. That's the spirit part we're talking about. When we say that we have a soul, it's our mind, our will, and our emotions. You have the ability to think. You have the ability to experience emotions and have a strong will. You know, I've been blessed with strong-willed children, especially my youngest. And a lot of people see that as a bad thing. I just look at what he's going to do for God down the road when he's unwilling to yield to what other people think. And so having a strong will is not a bad thing. And some people look at their kids and they're like, I've got to break that will. You don't need to break the will. You need to point it in the right direction. And so our mind and our will and our emotions are not meant to lead us. They're meant to be directed. As Paul would say, set your mind on this or have this mind or let it be this way. And when we talk about our body, the, the, the word that's used there is the Greek word soma, which just simply means your dirt suit, because that's what God created it out of. He made a mound of dirt, and when it wasn't until his breath of life hit it, that it became alive. And that's why we say from dust to dust, from ashes to ashes, from dust we came and from when dust will return, because you just got an old dirt suit that you hang around with. <laughs> it is not the real you, but all of these three parts comprise what is the you. Your spirit didn't walk in one door and your body the other because that would be weird and we'd call the Ghostbusters. 
So those are the three parts that Paul had defined us as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. He says that you, have a, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. So where do we fit in with this heart? I'm so glad you asked that question. How's everybody doing this morning? When, the word, when we use the word heart in the Hebrew, it's the word leb. And it basically means the same thing as in the Greek. So we're going to focus on the Greek word today, which is the word cardia. And that's where we get our word for cardiologist. It's a doctor of the heart. Or we do cardio, which means to get our heart racing and get it moving and get it pumping, get the blood pumping. And so it's a symbolic picture of of what they consider the center of us. But in its simplest definition, it's the center and the seat of spiritual life. I don't really like that definition because it doesn't really give us depth or clarity of what he's talking about. So if we mine a little bit deeper into that, the Strong's Dictionary defines it as the soul or mind. And when they use the word soul, I mentioned to you two weeks ago that the English language has, a, has done a poor job of describing these words because sometimes we'll talk about the spirit and we'll use the word soul. But when we look at the background words that which you use, we're not talking about a spirit, we're talking about a mind. And so when Paul used, or the, the, the Strong's Dictionary uses the word soul, they're referring to your spirit here. And so when it says it's the soul or the spirit or mind, as it is the fountain and the seat of thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. You okay with a little teaching this morning? bringing a little bit of definition to this. So it's the parts where your soul and your mind seem to intersect. And it says it is the fountain. And that's an important idea when defining this word. What does a fountain do? It springs up. It doesn't just kind of fall. It springs out. It's active. It just kind of happens, right? And so what it has to do with, I believe, when it, ha- when it talks about our passions, our desires, our appetites, our affections, our purposes, and our endeavors, it's talking about our subconscious programming. Our heart is the operating programming or the parameters of which we have allowed to govern our lives. It's the parts of you that you have allowed to be dominant. It's the parts of your spirit that you are more apt to follow. It's the parts of your mind that you've programmed yourself. It's the, it's the desires of your body when your body says, oh, I'm tired, I want to go to sleep. Do you tell it to shut up or do you go and follow it? And it, it holds all those types of programming that we have subconsciously put in. And so when we talk about the heart, it, is, it responds instinctively to how you have programmed it. And the thing I like about programming is if you don't like the programming, you can change it. If your programming on your computer is corrupt, you get it reprogrammed, right? right? And so when we talk about the heart, it's the things that you've allowed to be dominant in your life that just seem to happen instinctively or subconsciously. I like what this this one article I read said. It says, numerous cognitive neuroscientists have conducted studies that have revealed that only 5% of our cognitive activities, our decisions, our emotions, our actions, our behavior, is conscious. 
where the other remaining 95% is generated in a non-conscious manner. 95% of what we do, we do because it's how we've programmed ourselves to do. We get up in the morning, we have our routines that we don't even think about. Some of us slip into our slippers, some of us stumble down the hallway, go into the bathroom, some of us hit the kitchen first to hit the start button on the coffee. Whatever your programming is, you don't do it by thinking about it, you do it because you've programmed yourself. And your heart is the part of you that holds your programming. And as we said, if you don't like the programming, you can change it. As Paul said to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, he said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If your programming's chip checking you up, tripping you up, you can change it. You can fix it. You can create new habits and new subconscious activities by changing the programming. Because Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, as we said the last two weeks, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Meaning they set their mind in a direction, they told it which way to go, and because of that, they were either living out of their natural abilities or they were living out of their spiritual abilities. And so last week we asked the question, so how do we begin to grow? If you need to reprogram, the place to start is, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The simplest place to start is to find yourself in the word Find out what God has said about you, how your life should look, and start pointing yourself in that direction. We don't grow by wishing we were something else. We don't ever reach a destination by sitting back and saying, I wish I was in Florida right now. No, I get in the car and I start my journey on that direction. And so our journey of transformation and our journey of reprogramming our heart and growing up spiritually begins with inputting the word. That's always the first place to start. It's always the first place to have a checkup with. No matter how far we are in this journey with God, the Word is always the first and the last place to be. Because it's what promotes growth in the things of God. It's like in a garden, if I want to grow corn, I plant corn. If I want to see the things of the Spirit become dominant in my life, I give attention to the things of the Spirit. And so what we do is we create an environment for growth. Growth happens intentionally. You know, I was listening to the radio this morning, and usually while I'm driving into the church, I don't usually listen to anything on Sunday mornings. It's kind of my time to file my thoughts and get things all sorted. But this morning, I just clicked it on, and it was on CHRI from the last time I was in the vehicle. And it was Lutheran hour, and it was normally it wouldn't be a show that I would listen to. And uh, the gentleman that was on there actually was talking about these very things that we're talking about this morning. And he was examining and doing studies into what he would call spiritually vibrant families. And I think that's what we all desire to have in a, 
You know, you come to this church not because you want to just be the same. You come because you want to be spiritually vibrant. And so he was examining spiritually vibrant families. And he said one of the common things they all had was they had a messy fireplace versus a clean furnace. And the host of the show said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know when you have a furnace, you've got the thermostat on the side of your wall and you set the minimum temperature you want. So in the winter, it's like, I don't want it to drop below 20 degrees in here. So you set it at 20 and you don't think about it again. It just kind of kicks on and it happens. And he said, when we examined families that just had... We went to church on Sunday, but that's all they ever did. It was their minimum input. They went to church to allow their pastor to feed them, or they sent their kids to Sunday school to let the teacher teach them. They found that those families were not very spiritually vibrant. But he said, in comparison, if we look at those with messy fireplaces, he said, they were spiritually vibrant. And she said, what do I mean by messy fireplaces? He's meaning it's a hands-on experience. If you don't put a log in the fire, the fire starts to die. It gets cold in your room. And he said, you know, that you have the coals. You got to stir them up. You got to keep it. He said it described an active everyday experience where it wasn't just about going to church. And going to church is a very important part of our spiritual growth. But it's something that happens on a daily basis. Sometimes we get messy. Sometimes we mess it up. Sometimes the house gets a little cooler. Sometimes we get the fire just a raging. <laughs> but it requires activity and action from us on a daily basis. And that's how we grow. You know that creating an environment for growth often involves things that others see as undesirable. Others may not approve of the amount of time that you spend doing things of God. They may, well, why don't you have more time to come out and do all these other things with me? And the thing I've found is when you put God first, you still find time for everything else. Others may not approve of how you spend your time, but they're not the one who's trying to grow. You are. And I was thinking about my garden. And so three years ago, we moved into the house that we're in now. And in our old house, we had a garden. We loved to grow vegetables. It was a lot of fun. But we hadn't got around to having time to create one at our new place. So we decided that this year was the year that we were going to get the garden going at this new house. And so we found out where we wanted to put it. But do you know that when you haven't broken ground, it's a little tough, it's a little hard, and it's a lot of work. And so we started out, we measured out the space that we wanted, we staked it off, and we started turning the earth. And we turned, and we turned, and we turned, and we were tired. <laughs> and so we went and we got a rototiller, which we thought, hey, this is going to be, you know, a little, add a little more horsepower, this is going to be better. But you know when the earth has been trodden over for a long time, it gets tough. And so even with the rototiller put on high, it was still like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm dragging it instead of it driving me. It was a lot of work. And a lot of people wouldn't do it. That's why a lot of people don't have gardens. You know, I know, Gail, you're a gardener, so you, you can understand what I'm talking about when you're starting up a new bed. And you begin to work the ground and you begin to loosen it up. 
And then we decided we should probably put up a fence because we've got a bunch of animals in our area. We don't want the little bunnies coming and chewing off all of our growth. So we put up a fence to protect what we were trying to grow. And sometimes you have to set boundaries saying, this is what I'm choosing to do and I don't care what comes and bangs against the fence. I put the fence up for a reason. And so we broke the ground, we protected the area where we wanted to grow, and then we thought, you know what, we need to add some more nutrients. So we drove down to Mr. Garnet's farm, he took a tractor, and he dumped a huge pile of horse manure and sheep manure in the back of our truck. Trust me, that's not a desirable job. <laughs> Who likes to work with the feces of another animal? But we took that and we spread it through our garden and we worked it in and it was messy. We were black and dirty. The kids were rolling around it and I'm like, oh guys, that's really not something you want to be doing. But we were intentional. We wanted a garden because we wanted to grow things. And so now we fast forward six months later and we are feasting on all more tomatoes than we can handle, more zucchini. Every day the boys bring in handfuls of beans and we're living in a place of growth because we were intentional and we created an environment for it. What you want to see may take some work now, but it's worth it down the road go ahead and cre create the environment to grow. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? I like how the King James says it. He says, take no thought for your life. I like that picture because it shows us that thoughts come by and we go, that one's mine. And that's how worry and anxiety begin in our lives. A thought came by and we said, that one's mine, I'm going to focus on this one. And so you can think about it this way when we're talking about doing, uh, creating an environment is not always going to be uh, um, attractive to those around you. Not worrying can actually be worrisome to a worrier because they've gotten so used to worrying. So the thought of not having something to worry about now becomes worrying. And so when they see you not worrying, they're like, how come, Jessica, how come you're not worrying? Don't you know we're in the midst, middle of a pandemic? Don't you know people are dying? And all those things, yes, are happening, but they don't have to be the center of your growth. They don't need to be planted in your garden for tomorrow. And so Jesus tells the disciples, don't take those thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about what I'm going to eat. No, these things are, you need to have food in your cupboard and you need to put food on your table for your kids. But these are not the things we need to worry about and allow to become the idols of our lives. Because he says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more of more value than are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? The more you worry is not going to make you taller, but I don't know, Joel, I don't know what your secret's been, but you just keep getting taller and taller and taller. 
In verse 28, he says, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin, meaning they don't worry about it. They just do it. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is to, today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. What he's meaning is saying, trust me. I'll take care of you. Spend time with me. You'll grow in the areas that are important. In verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I love how the message translation says a few of these verses. It says, if God gives such attention to the appearance of the wildflowers, most of which are never seen, don't you think he'll attend to you and take pride in you? Do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax. To not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works, they fuss over these things. But you know, both know God and how he works. Isn't that where we started in this series? Who is your God? Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Growth happens by proximity. You get with God and growth just happens. You input the things of God and your heart just begins to change. And you begin to find that God becomes more and more your treasure every day. You know, if we think about Psalm 23, it's one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. Just says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that the sheep don't worry? The shepherd takes care of them. He gets them where they need to get food. He puts them in the place of protection. You know, I like something that Brother Hagin wrote about this psalm in his book, Growing Up Spiritually. And he calls it Experiencing Acquaintance. He says, to me, no passage describes the love attitude of the Father and Jesus towards us more beautifully than the 23rd Psalm. Many Psalms are prophetic. The 22nd Psalm is a picture of Jesus dying. The 20, in the 23rd Psalm, he is the good shepherd. The 24th Psalm shows him as the coming King of kings and Lord of lords upon this earth. We are living in the 23rd Psalm right now. The Lord is my shepherd. When Jesus came, he said, I am, present tense, the good shepherd. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus as Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. 
Now we live in the 23rd Psalm, and this is my interpretation of the 23rd Psalm. I always say it this way, the Lord is my shepherd, I do not want. I do not want. Perfect satisfaction, the ultimate of living. Verse 2 says, is where the luscious clover and the tender grass carpet the ground. No effort on my part is required to have or to get enough. I love that. He leads me beside the water, waters of stillness. Water and food are the requisites to sustain life. Thank God he leads me. He leadeth me. He supplies every need. He makes me to lie down and rest in safety and quietness in the pastures of plenty. Near me is a babbling brook. Its living waters answer the cry of my heart. I have water. I have food. I have protection. I have shelter. I have his care. This is my father. When I am frightened and filled with fear, when my whole being is convulsed with agony, he restores my soul. I love that. He keeps me quiet. He makes me normal again. He brushes away my fears and anxiety. He holds me to his breast and he breathes into me courage and faith. My heart laughs at my enemies for he guides me down the path of grace through the realm of righteousness where I stand in his presence as though sin had never been. I romp and play in the throne room of grace Never with a thought, not a fear, nor a dread. My father, you see, is the one who is on the throne. He may be judge to the world and God to the sinner, but he's father to me. And sometimes I come in, most of the time, in, in fact, to visit with him and hear him say, Son, is there anything you want? Is there anything I can do for you? And I say, Father, I don't want a thing. You're so wonderful and so lovely and so good. You've already provided for me all I'll ever need. And you wrote me a letter and told me about it. That's what his word is. It's a letter revealing his heart to you. So I don't have a care, God. I don't have a need. I don't have a want that hasn't been met. No, I didn't come for something. I'll tell you, Father, I just came in to visit with you for a while. I just wanted to hang around the throne. I like to be near you, Father. And my Father said to me, oh, I could hear his voice so plainly as he spoke to me, Son, you don't know how much that delights my heart. No earthly father ever desired the companionship and fellowship of his children any more than I, the Heavenly Father. Desire the fellowship and companionship of my children. You know, he said to me, I made man so I'd have someone to fellowship with. I made man for my companionship. In fact, I'll put it this way, and he said it to me in just these words, I made man so I'd have someone to pal around with. <laughs> I put Adam on the earth in the garden in the cool of the day, and I'd go down and walk and talk with him. It is so blessed and so beautiful and so wonderful to be able to walk with God. And so our hearts begin to change and our lives begin to be revolutionized by one simple little thing. 
When you're with God, it's hard not to be like him. Father, we thank you for your word. But above all, we thank you for your love and your care for us. We know that wherever we find ourselves, there you are right with us, walking with us. And so we turn our eyes to you. We turn our hearts to you. We look full right in your face, Lord. And we let the things of this earth just fall to the wayside. And we thank you for it. Maybe you're listening today via the podcast and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. You can't have a journey if you haven't met him. And so we would love to pray with you right now. Don't wait another moment. Come on, church, let's pray with them. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We invite him into our life right now. We thank you that he is our Lord, that he died for us, that he rose again, and because of him, we get to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us today, we would love for you to get in contact with us and get some resources into your hand and get you hooked up with a good church in your area. If you're in the Smith Falls area, we say welcome home. We would love to walk this journey with you. But guys, it's the simple things. He didn't make it complicated. Just show up and let his love do the work. Amen? Amen. Pastor Robin. Praise God.